Well, as you know, here at Northwest, on occasion, we bring in a guest speaker, and I want you to know that we only bring in the best for our community here. Well, it's my joy to uh, introduce somebody very special to me. Uh, Cliff Johnson has been one of my very best friends. We first met in college in another lifetime, 23, 24 years ago. We were suite mates. Uh, we were in the same suite at uh, Bible College, and uh, we tried for a really long time. My girlfriend, then fiance, then wife, Becca, uh, as we were dating, we really, really tried to set up Cliff with um, Becca's sister, Angela, who perhaps many of you know, because she spoke a couple years ago at a women's retreat. We tried to set them up several times in college, and it was like cats and dogs. Would that be a fair statement? It wasn't a good match. It was not a good time. match. But there was something about uh, June 13th, 1998, which was my wedding day, and Cliff was, of course, standing up there with me, and Angela was up there. Something just clicked at that moment, I think. I noticed her in a new way. <laughs> so anyway, long story short, uh, you know, Cliff ended up marrying Angela, and we really hit the jackpot, would you not say? We absolutely did. Okay, absolutely and this did. is very pandering to our spouses. Which... And it's Father's Day. Why are we buttering them up? I'm not They're sure. They're supposed to say good things about us. I suppose. Okay. Anyhow, um, it's been really cool to have Cliff as one of my very best friends, see what the Lord's done in his life. And right now he's involved in a church called Kensington Church up in Michigan. Incredible, incredible ministry, ministering to tens of thousands of people. They're locally in the Detroit area and all around the world, um, really doing some amazing things for the kingdom. And we are so so, so pleased to be able to have him come down here and uh, join us um, uh, for Father's Day. So let's give a warm uh, Northwest round of applause to Cliff Johnson. Thank you. Thanks. We, uh, we, we tried to figure out a way to get down here Friday uh, because we wanted to get here so we kind of have a day to relax. And, but Friday was the last day of school for our girls. So we did the old like, hey, maybe... Just maybe we can pack the car Friday morning, drive to school at noon, pick them up, and leave right from there. That was the plan, because anyone out there a StrengthsFinder fan, like you've done that at your job? Anybody else besides me? Okay. So like I'm a futuristic activator, maximizer, strategic achiever. That's my top five. If that seems weird, it is weird. I don't know why I memorized it, but I did. But um, maximizers love to do two things at once. We love to like, I like to take a shower and listen to a podcast. Like I feel like I'm just beating the system somehow. And so I'm like, man, if we pack and we pick them up and we head right down here, it's going to be amazing. Well, this is my family. Um, right here, this picture, uh, right after this wood grain one. There we go. Um, so that's Lily in the back middle. She's nine. London just turned seven. And Harley in the front is two and a half. That's my beautiful wife, Angela, who's sitting right there. Why don't you wave? There we go. And the fact that you knew her first was better for you because she truly is like the best of our family, I mean, in all sincerity. Um, so that's our family. So you already know where this story's going. Like that clan getting packed in the morning very quickly and getting in the van is not, is not really gonna work. And so by the time we got everything packed up and figured out, and then we actually went to go get the front left tire of our minivan. Yes, I drive a minivan, I can admit it today. Get that tire checked. And then they called us, they're like, hey man, your brakes, hey man, your tires. So 7.45 p.m. Friday night is when we got on the road. And I decided I'm going to drive through the night. I'm going to do it. So I made two 10-cup Chemex, any, any coffee fans out there? Two of those, I put them in an air pot. 
uh, in the car, in the dashboard, and I just would plunge out fresh coffee the whole trip. I had cold brew in a cooler. I had all kinds of stuff ready to roll. And I did pretty good for like the first 10 and a half hours. And at about 6.30 in the morning, I was talking to Angela, and she asked me a question, and I gave an answer that was complete and utter gibberish. It had nothing to do with anything, and I was listening, and I just gave this line that made no sense to anyone. She's like, are you okay? I'm like, I am getting a little tired. And I went to say something else, and I actually drooled. And it just came right out. And there was no dental work. There was no excuse. It just, I just drooled in normal conversation. So we pulled over immediately, and she drove the last hour. Uh, but we were able to make it here, and uh, I slept most of the day yesterday. But I'm excited to be here with you today. I feel pretty good. Got some sleep last night. Got some strong coffee. I had my Starbucks double shot on ice with eight shots of espresso that I normally have on Sunday morning. So I am like, I'm feeling pretty good. Pretty, that's like, that brings me to a baseline that's comfortable for me. But it's Father's Day. It's, I don't want to miss that. It's Father's Day. And one of the things I love about Father's Day, first of all, here are my three girls, a closer shot of them. Uh, and those, those are the beauties that we have. And that's Lily, Harley, and London, left to right. And all three of them, we are so grateful. We love them so much. All three of them are adopted also, which is a whole bigger part of the story I'll tell a little bit later. Um, but same, same biological mom, and uh, Lily was 10 weeks or so when we started the process of adopting her. Harley was a year and a half, and London was right from the hospital. So we've got a whole adoption journey that we've walked. But that's my story for being a dad. And something I love about Father's Day is each and every one of us that's a dad has a dad story. Like whether it was like, boy, you just had kids right away, and, that's, and, and, and you got married young, and boy, now you're like that young dad where you're 41 and your kid's in college, or you're the old dad like me, I'm 42, and I've got a two-year-old. There's that guy as well. But it's interesting because when we talk about the journey we have as fathers, it, for a lot of us, it's a journey that goes kind of up and down. It's a story, it's a journey, and no two are alike. And, and for us, our journey had seemingly had a lot more downs. The first nine years of our marriage, we wanted children, but it just wasn't happening. We tried different things, and, and, and nothing was working. And as, as debt was mounting and failure was building, it was bitterness was starting to really happen in my heart towards God even. And I remember as the hopelessness really started to set in, I remember on this one particular year, it was, uh, it was actually our anniversary of 2009 was on June 3rd. And we had something going on. I was serving at a church in Michigan at the time as a young adults pastor. So we couldn't go out and celebrate on our actual anniversary. But the next day, June 4th, I looked at my wife and I said, you know, why don't we just go out and go see a movie? We had just gotten really bad news. We we're super discouraged. And, it was, and the bad news was all about children and not being able to have them and infertility and all these things happening and failing. So I was like, let's just go see a movie. Let's just go see something super light Super fun, total escapist, something where we could just disengage the pain of our lives. And so we went to this movie right here. Anybody know what movie this is? I made the mistake of not watching the trailer or reading anything because I'm like, it's a Pixar movie. There's no way it's going to deal with the loss of a pregnancy and, and permanent infertility and the, in, in, in a couple's life in most, the most powerful, beautiful ways, but heart-wrenching ways. Have you ever seen the movie Up? There's like a 10-minute section of this heartbreaking journey. And I'm sitting there in the theater on June 4th. Myself, Angela, Becca, and Jerry were with us. And Angela is squeezing my hand very, very firmly. And I looked over, and tears are just streaming down her cheeks. And to be totally honest with you, I wasn't crying. I was mad. And you know what? I wasn't mad at Steve Jobs or whoever directed this for Pixar because it was a brilliant film, honestly. 
Steve Jobs owned Pixar, that's why I said it. Anyway, I wasn't mad at them. What, what I was, the person I was most mad at, though, if I'm being totally honest, and I was a pastor at the time, so this isn't like a pre, like this is not a good story for me to tell probably. I was mad at God. I was mad at God because I'm thinking, why didn't you allow someone to stop me? Why didn't you have someone go, Cliff, that's not a great idea. The season that you're in, this movie's all about infertility and loss and this whole thing, like, this is going to be really hard for you. We just walked in there and I felt like we were at already at an all-time low relationally but from this whole journey. And then it was like, somehow this film emotionally took me to rock bottom. June 4th, 2009 is a date that I had wished hadn't, honestly hadn't happened. It was when we think about the life of Paul, Paul had moments of really extreme, amazing highs where he saw healings happen and saw tons of people give their lives to Jesus. Then he saw moments of incredible pain and suffering and depth and heartbreak and depression. And I know you guys are just completing a series that you did through the first 13, 14 chapters of Acts. I'm actually going to jump to the very last part of the book of Acts, Acts 27 and 28. I'm going to tell you a little bit of how it finishes, but... To take it from where you guys left off, uh, Acts 14 and 15 start a journey where the gospel's moving out, the church is growing, and Paul is a major part of it. And so as Paul starts moving through and planting churches and spending time at Ephesus and Thessalonica and all around the ancient world, he's got this heartbeat and this passion to go back to Jerusalem. He wants to go back to stand in front of the Sanhedrin where he was once a star member. He was a fast-rising, young, gifted, rabbinic student who had the rare ability to not only be loyal and faithful to his Pharisaic beliefs and, and that party that he was a part of, but he also was able somehow to cross the political aisle and work with the, with the Sadducees as well. It would be that rare political person in our lifetime who could somehow get Republicans and Democrats to work together. That was Paul. There was a bright future for him in Judaism because of how gifted he was at working with people. And the assignment he was given by the, the high priest who was a Sadducee was to go and hunt Christians, to go and arrest them and to bring them in to stamp out this church. And so as Paul is doing that, he's going out and he's finding him. He has this incredible breakthrough, this moment with Jesus on the road to Damascus, a town 100 miles away from Jerusalem. And then he starts to begin his journey with Jesus and he then goes out and preaches the gospel and advances the church. But his goal is to get back to Jerusalem where he sort of cut his teeth, where he sat at the feet of the rabbi Gamaliel and served under him, was taught under this famous rabbi. And so finally in Acts 22, he gets back to Jerusalem and when he stands up in front of the Sanhedrin to tell them about the gospel and about Jesus, he gets about one sentence out and he gets punched in the face. And then he says something else, and the room breaks into an uproar, and it gets so violent that the Roman centurions pull him away so that they don't pull his arms out of the sockets, it says in the scripture. That's how violent it got. So you find Paul at the end of Acts 22 and the start of Acts 23 sitting in a jail cell in Jerusalem, having his dream to get and stand in front of his former friends and colleagues and mentors completely dashed. And he's sitting there broken, bruised, bleeding, and alone. And in the moment of his darkest depression and hurt, Jesus personally comes to him and says, Paul, the same, take heart or take courage. The same way that you testified about me in Jerusalem, you're going to testify about me in Rome. Which at first sounds encouraging because like, hey, I'm going to go do something great. But how did it go for him in Jerusalem? He got beat up, tortured, arrested, and now he was imprisoned. 
And so Jesus is saying, hey, you're going to do that again. And that's exactly what happens. And so as he's moving through different courts and different trials, he finally stands as a Roman citizen and appeals to Caesar. He says, I want to stand before Caesar, which was the right of any Roman citizen to have their case heard in the highest court of the land in the presence of Caesar himself. And so in order to fulfill that, in Acts 27, he's taken by a group of soldiers, and they go down and they find a boat that's heading to Rome. And they found a special kind of boat. It was an Alexandrian grain freighter, which was an Egyptian ship. And it could hold a lot of people. This particular boat had 276 people on it. And they had a large, they had a large cargo full of grain that needed to get to Rome. And even though it was past the time where you were supposed to sail, the captain was up for it. The, the centurion Roman soldier that was assigned to Paul was up for it, and all the sailors were up for it because it's like, hey, let's sneak in one more sail and get paid one more time before the winter rolls in. But as any of us know who watch the news, there's a hurricane season in Florida that you don't go out with your little boat in the middle of. You stay off the water, and that's similar to what was going on in the ancient world. There was a certain time of year you just stopped sailing and you waited till the storm season was over. And so they took a risk and said, let's go and see if we could sneak one more trip in before the winter comes. And Paul said to them, I don't think it's a good idea. We're going to get in trouble. We're going to be hurt. It's very dangerous. I think it's a bad idea. And they didn't listen to him, which is funny because right now you're like, wow, he's Paul. Why didn't they listen? But to them, he's just a dude in handcuffs and anklets and being led off to prison. They're like, of course he's going to say, let's not go to my prison sentence. Let's not go to my court date. Let's stay here a little longer. So they disregarded what he had to say. And we'll pick it up in verse 11. But the centurion paid more attention, Acts 27, verse 11. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose... They weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. Can't you just see them be like, hey, buddy, you told us not to go. The gods are shining and showing us favor and giving us a gentle breeze. We're taking off. We're going. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And they think it's time. They think they've beat the system, and they're going to grab good weather. But isn't it amazing? They start out, everything seems great, and then they are blindsided by one of the worst storms recorded in ancient literature. This is a just a ghastly, dangerous, horrible storm. It's amazing to think about your life too. I don't know about you, but I've had seasons where everything seems great and it's almost like that gentle breeze is blowing and everything's awesome, everything seems perfect and then I'm blindsided by the biggest storm I've ever faced in my entire life and I didn't see it coming. Everything seemed great. Then the conversation happens. The breakup happens. The loss happens. The family member's sick. And that's what happened here. Look at verse 14. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster, it was a wind so strong it had its own name, it's amazing, uh, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, this is the lifeboat they're talking about, they're like, hey, get the lifeboat, we're going to need this, we're in big trouble. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. So they actually wrapped the ship with ropes to try to hold it together so it wouldn't break apart due to the power of this wind and these waves. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. 
Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with all their own hands. When neither the sun nor the stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This is a horrible storm. Remember, who's on this boat? The owner of the boat, the pilot, captain of the boat, a bunch of sailors who do this for a living, Roman soldiers, famous throughout antiquity for their courage and their bravery, Paul, and then we have a first-hand account given to us by the author of Acts that has been established here to be Dr. Luke. So Luke, Paul, soldiers, sailors, these are not a bunch of tourists. This is not a three-hour tour that went horribly wrong. This is a professional group of hardened soldiers and sailors that have faced things like this, and even they were like, we are not going to survive. They throw off the cargo. Now remember, they, this whole thing was about getting that cargo to Rome and getting paid. So they're like, look no further. If you get rid of the cargo, you get rid of the tackle, you know, you're basically just saying, we just need to survive this. Forget the grain. Who cares if we get paid? I want to see my family again. And then it says, they couldn't see the sun nor the stars. The question is, in the days before Google Maps, in the days before Apple Maps, in the days before Waze on your phone, how did you navigate your way around the open sea? The sun and the stars, right? So if you can't see them, and it says they're being driven along, they dropped anchor, it's kind of like digging your heels in and being dragged when you were a kid, or driving with your emergency brake on, or something you're trying to do to slow down. It says they were being pushed haphazardly by the wind and by the waves and by this violent storm. If I was to, to take, when I, when I heard this story, when I've thought through this story and I read the details of it and the chaos and they have no idea where they are, if I had to draw on a map the journey from Fair Havens to their destination, I would more than likely do this. Zigzag, zigzag. I recently saw that movie, Adrift, about, it's like, the, it's like two hours of sheer clench. It wasn't enjoyable at all, but it was about, you know, it's about getting stranded at sea for 41 days in this horrible storm, and the girl who's navigating, like, act, made a miscalculation and changed their course by one degree and missed their destination by several hundred miles. So it's an exacting form based on stars, and so if you have no access to the stars, no way to do the formulas, you literally have no idea where you are. You know the basic ocean that you're in, but that's about it. So this is chaos, and they're being driven along. And what I, what I think is very telling is, the last line says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. All hope. It doesn't say 274 had lost hope, but Paul and Luke still felt pretty good about what Jesus had told them. It says all hope had been lost. And I look at this, I'm like, wait, but Paul, remember Jesus came to you and Jesus said, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go to Rome. You're going to stand before Caesar. But the storm was so big and the waves were so high and the wind was so strong and the darkness was so complete that Paul chose to believe the storm more than he believed the promise of Jesus in his life. He couldn't see it. Just like that moment in the Gospels, where Peter gets out of the boat in the midst of that storm, and he starts walking to Jesus, and he's walking, and as long as he had his eyes on Jesus, and he believed that Jesus was going to be with him and help him, he walked. But the moment he saw the wind, or saw the waves, and he felt the wind, and he looked down, that's when he started to sink. Paul did the same thing. I love that the Bible is full of characters like this, that when things get rough, they lose hope. 
Because I find myself in that story. How many times have I had a season where the wind and the waves and the rain and the darkness overwhelmed me and I honestly lost hope? I can tell you it's happened more times than I care to admit. In fact, that same week, that same week that Angela and I had gotten that news that our latest attempt at having a child had failed, the same week that we went and we saw that movie up, we were sitting in the car and we were just talking about life, and Angela looked over at me, and she said, hey, babe, maybe we're just not supposed to have kids. Maybe that's just not what God has for us. Maybe we're just supposed to invest in other people's children. And we had spent 10 years in student ministry. We spent, at that point, we were three years into young adult ministry. And she said, and if that's the case, I just want you to know that you're enough for me. Which sounds really nice and beautiful, but it was almost as if I saw, as she said those words, the hope just left And that was the moment where, like, hopelessness set in. I don't know if you've ever been there, where the darkness is overwhelmed. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's just a season you're in and you cannot see your way past it. You cannot possibly fathom how God could somehow use this season. You can't see what he's up to. You feel alone. You feel separated. And you don't see any way out. There's always a way out. So in the midst of that storm, in the midst of that hopelessness, here's what happens, which I love. What I love is what happens in verse 21. It says, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. That's a great opening line, isn't it? Told you so. Seems a little immature. (laughs) Like, wow, that's kind of a jerk move, Paul. They all knew you said that. You don't think that's all they've been thinking about for two weeks? Is that one prisoner that told them this was coming? So why would he say that? Because he was establishing credibility. Saying, listen, if you had listened to me the first time, we wouldn't be in this mess. Don't ignore me now. And he stood up in that moment, and he shared with them hope. Because what he says to them next says, verse 22, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there'll be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. So 275 guys were like, yeah, the ship owner was like, oh, shoot, I'm losing my boat. Um, For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul, for you must stand before Caesar. So again, he's restating the promise of Jesus. Isn't that amazing how it's something I love. It's like in, our, in Paul's state of hopelessness, we don't serve a God that goes, come on, Paul. Why do you have such little faith? Come on, man. Like, I made you a promise. I honor my promises. You know that. Trust me. Believe me. Why have you lost faith? He doesn't do that. In fact, in the midst of Paul's darkness, his despair, his hopelessness, he gets a message from God through an angel to say, hey, remember Jesus' promise? That's going to happen. And I'm going to add a promise to it just to give you encouragement. And the promise is you are all going to survive this, but the ship won't. And behold, God has granted to you all those who sail with you. They're all going to survive. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God. It will be exactly as I have been told. So he's saying to them in this moment, okay, now here's what message I have. We're going to survive. We're going to make it. Don't ignore me. So now at first, his message seemed negative. Let's not go. Let's play it safe. And they're like, forget you. We're going to make it. Now he's basically saying to them, we're going to survive. But what's interesting about this is 
Notice he didn't say, we're going to survive through an incredible miracle of God where he's going to lift our boat up out of the storm, carry us safely to some harbor, and set us down. He says in a minute, we need to find an island to crash upon. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I saw the movie Jaws at seven years old. The idea of me floating in the ocean after a shipwreck does not sound like a rescue to me. That's like my nightmare. That's probably my, my consistent nightmare. Did anyone see that video that was posted this week of the scuba divers in Florida? And they're like, oh, look, that weird dark shadow is a 15-foot great white shark. I'm like, okay, now I'm out of the water again in Florida. Like, find me a new, I used to, I used to get some solace in the fact that most great whites are like in South Africa or Australia. Now they've moved to Florida. So I will stay in pools. And even pools I'm not sure of. I go under the water and just double check. I'm like, are we sure here? We sure? I had a pool when I was a kid and the pool light was out. You know, the little pool light under the driving board? So my dad removed it and didn't put it back. And I was convinced that that was a pipe to the ocean and that a shark was coming out. So I would do that by myself. I'd be like, under the water, above the water, under the water looking for that fin. So I'm hearing a shipwreck thrown into the sea as pretty scary. So this rescue may be coming, but it's not coming without pain. It's not coming without suffering. In fact, most people in the ancient world, the belief about the deep waters was that it was a gateway to the underworld. And so you don't have a lot of swimmers back then. A lot of people did not learn to swim because there was such fear about the underworld. That's why it was so significant that Jesus chose fishermen to be his disciples because they weren't afraid to wander out into what realistically in the world's eyes, they walked out into hell to earn their living. He chose bold, brave fishermen. Side note, bonus material. So he's telling them we're going to crash land. And as soon as he says this, he sets off a lot of intrigue on the boat. You've got the sailors basically saying, hey, we have an idea. This boat's going to break into pieces. We don't know who this guy is. Let's get the lifeboat and let's sneak out when no one's looking. Paul hears it. I'm summarizing this section because of time. Paul hears of it, tells the centurion, don't let him go. If they go, we're not going to make it. So the centurion grabs the sailors and is like, you're not leaving. Then the soldiers find out this plan, and they have a secret plan. They're going to kill all the prisoners because if, let's say, they don't know that, they're chained, that their prisoner, they're assigned to guard, is the Michael Phelps of his time. They don't know that. And he hits the water, and he's gone, and they're in their gear with their little hat on, and they're trying to swim with their sword, and they can't catch him. If that prisoner gets away under Roman law, you faced their sentence. So it was a way to curb bribery was to make sure that like, if you were assigned to guard someone, if they got away, no matter the reason, you would die in their place. And so the soldiers were just going to kill him to say, hey, in the midst of all the crazy shipwreck, all the prisoners somehow died, but we're all okay. Paul found out about that, and he said, he told the centurion, don't let them kill us, because if you kill us, we're not going to make it back. And so there's all kinds, I mean, just imagine, no one's eaten, it's still a storm, they're heading towards land, and they know that because they're taking soundings, and it's getting shallower and shallower and shallower, and all of a sudden they crash into a reef. The boat is obliterated into a million pieces, and the guys who can't swim grab a hold of the wood and float into shore. There was a young couple named Jack and Rose, and Rose grabbed a door and let Jack freeze to death and then watched him die. So that was how the Titanic slash this boat sank. No. So they all floated to shore, and they get to the shore. And I don't know where you are in this story, but if I'm there, after two weeks, my stomach's empty, seasickness has killed me, it's, it's awful, I'm on that beach and I'm kissing the sand. And it's cold out, and it's rainy again, it's like the winter season, 
I'm wrapped up in a blanket with coffee staring wistfully into the distance, you know, kind of PTSD guy. What does Paul do? Paul, for whatever reason, decides to join the local Maltese people who, when they saw this boat wreck, the Maltese people came over the hill with all their little white dogs with them, and they came rushing down to the shore, and they rescue them, and they build them a little fire, and Paul is helping them build the fire. So now, let's put ourselves, the storm is just now, it could still be raging, but they survive it. Paul's on the shore, and it's like, okay, it's time to exhale. It can't get any worse. Only it gets worse. Look at verse 3. This is total madness to me. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So he's trying to help, but he gets bit by a poison snake. No wonder the people say, in verse 4, when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man's a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So he's bit, you look at this, it's like, my goodness, he was already, he just got through the storm, how much more can he possibly take? And then he's bit by a poisonous snake. You have those moments in your life where you're like, God, I cannot take one more thing, I've been going through this, we're emotionally spent, I'm broken, we're hurting, and there's finally a little bit of relief, or finally a little break, and then boom, something else happens that takes it one level deeper. I mean, what's next? Walking away from the fire and stepping on an undiscovered landmine for poor Paul? This is unbelievable. When we hit that second rock bottom, we have that thing that comes when we don't think we can handle anything else. My response, like it was in the theater that day, what are you doing? Why would you let this happen? Paul just got bit by a snake after surviving a shipwreck. This is madness. Why? What possible reason could there have been for this to take place? Look at verse 5. Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune came to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So he goes from murder to god in like 20 minutes. What did this event really do for Paul? If you look at God's purpose, this gave Paul... A prisoner, incredible credibility, very high credibility. Like there's something in this guy. There's something else. They think he's a god, but at least they think there's something supernatural about him. And why is that important? Why does that matter? Who cares? A prisoner on the beach of a tiny island. Malta is one-tenth the size of Rhode Island. It is tiny. We can fit the whole island of Malta in this room. No, it's not that small, but it's very, very, very small. So why? Verse 7 answers it for us. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Poblius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened, or it just so happened, that the father of Poplius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Isn't that amazing? 
He gets there, he crash lands on this tiny island that would be difficult for an expert sailor to find on a map with sun, with stars to navigate. They land haphazardly on the shore of this island where there just so happens to be someone who needs to heal or they're going to die. Because of Paul's misfortune and shipwreck and pain and suffering, someone else was healed through it. And not only that man, the rest of the town came and they were healed. And we know that Paul preached the gospel because churches started out of that. And to this day, there's 359 churches on the island of Malta today. Their identity as an island comes out of this event. And they're a, very, a people who are very religious and very much focused on this event and their place in the New Testament. So you talk about a people group that could feel very ignored and very outside, very tiny, very insignificant, and yet God loved them so much that he sent Paul to them to heal them physically and to heal them spiritually by sharing the gospel. What an unbelievable picture. I think about that, and I think about this idea that not only was God with Paul in the middle of this storm, but God had a purpose for the pain. Paul was given hope and rescue, even though even though Paul had forgotten the promise that Jesus had given to him and lost hope, God never forgot his promise. God never lost sight of Paul, and Paul was never, ever alone. God used Paul's painful journey to bring healing to the people of Malta. And when I think about us, and I think about you in the room, and I think about me, I'm reminded that God can redeem your pain when you use your story to help others. Have you ever noticed that when you share something you've gone through, a season of suffering, a season of pain, and someone shares with you, they're going through that right now, and you share your story, have you ever noticed the hope it brings? And when someone's encouraged by your story, it almost feels like that pain is redeemed a little bit. Like there's something, all of a sudden you're like, wow, I'm glad I went through that season because it helped this person. And if I hadn't gone through this exact season of pain, I would have had nothing to say to them in their deepest, darkest moment. And yet God allows us to encourage others and heal others through sharing the story of God's presence in our lives during the storms. Something else I think is significant is that everywhere that Paul was during this storm and what happened after, Paul engaged in that season. When he's on the boat, he could have easily just said, where's my quarters? I'm going down. I'm talking to Luke. We're going to write another book of the Bible. We're just going to, we're going to maximize our time. We're going to do it. We're going to kill two birds with one stone. Instead, what does he do? He says, hey, guys, don't leave. This is a bad idea. He tries to take leadership, and they shoot him down. And then he's praying, and he stands up. Now, you think there's a part of him that's like Jesus came to him, or the angel came and said, hey, you're going to make it. No one's going to die. You're going to get to Rome. He could have just been like, oh, that's encouraging. Luke, come here. I just had a vision, and we're going to be okay. Let's go to bed. He could have done that, right? I mean, how many of us have done that? We've gotten some encouraging news and we just tell our spouse or tell a friend or tell no one and we just go to sleep with a smile on our face. What does he do with it? He goes up on the deck of sailors and soldiers that are desperate and depressed and hurting and angry and starving. I want to talk about hangry people. And he gets up there and he says, and his opening line was, you should have listened to me. They were just too weak to punch him. But he engaged and he took leadership and he encouraged them. Then when they get on the shore... He could have just said, give me the blanket, give me coffee, I just need to stay. But he tried to make a fire and engage. And then he hears someone sick, and he goes and he engages. This is amazing to see, like, Paul did not get to the shore of Malta and be like, whew, I made it. I'm waiting. When's the ship from Rome leave to show me where my cell is? And what's amazing, too, is Paul wasn't given a room at the Four Seasons on Malta. He wasn't. He didn't even stay with Popelius. In fact, today is the grotto or the jail cell in malta it's a famous location where paul spent his months there in the jail cell 
So he's healing people. He's healing the governor's dad. And they're like, great, go back to your cell. There was a purpose for his pain. But part of how he saw the purpose was he was willing to engage at each part of his journey. He didn't wait till it was all fully resolved. And something I want to say for those of you in the room right now that are thinking, okay, you had me until this very tidy end. So of course Paul survived the shipwreck. Of course he survived the snake bite. Of course he healed the guy's governor. And of course they gave him all the snacks they needed for their journey to Rome. Because that's what the Bible does. It's these miracles. But before you push back and say, that's not my life, Paul was saved through a shipwreck. He wasn't transported magically. He fell in the water. He floated on a, on a piece of a busted ship. He's bit by a snake. He's healing people. And guess what? He was still a prisoner. He may have been set free from the hurricane, but he was still a prisoner. So before we push back from this and think, well, Paul's life worked out perfectly, just remember that he found grace and he found freedom in the midst of still ongoing struggles. Because it's never going to be perfect. We're never promised it's going to be perfect. But what we are promised is hope in the midst of it. That we can have hope in Jesus if we don't lose sight of him. So I don't know how you're wired, but I'm wired weird. And so I'm looking at, I want to know details about this journey. This journey from Fair Havens to Malta, 475 miles. Because I'm reading the text and I'm going, if I was to diagram this on a board, I would say the journey went like this. Just like that. And a lot of commentaries and things will do that. It was like this. Here's the problem with that. A nautical maritime researcher looked at the tides. They keep impeccable maritime logs back thousands of years. He looked at the, the tides, the storms, the size of the vessel, the season of the year, and the distance between the two. And he said this. He said in order to make it 475 miles between Fairhavens and Malta, the only way that that could be accomplished in 14 days is a direct straight line. None of this, this. To a tiny little island that's a speck in the ocean. The greatest captains of their day would have difficulty with a clear sky navigating those waters and landing at a tiny island. It's as if the boat was being guided by the hand of an unbelievable captain who had a plan that was right here. And when they couldn't see the sun and they couldn't see the stars and they felt alone, that God was disconnected and had no interest in their lives, there's a God who said to Paul, I love you, I see you, I know you, but I'm going to use this suffering in your life to heal people on this little island first. That's the God we serve, a God whose hand is guiding us exactly where he wants us to be. In spite of our loss of hope, in spite of our loss of faith, in spite of my discouragement and my pain and my doubt, he's guiding us in our lives, even in moments where we don't think he's there. So we adopted our sweet little Lily. We adopted her about 12, 10 to 12 weeks after she was born. It was a crazy journey. We got, a, we got an email. There's a 10-week-old little girl that needs to be adopted, and we just jumped into action. We have the rare story of having a baby that needed to be adopted rather than starting the adoption journey and finding a baby. And so we jumped through all the hoops, and God gave us this precious little gift. This is her with us. Um, she wasn't walking at 10 weeks old. This was a little later. <laughs> she wasn't that gifted of a baby. Um, but that's her, our little pudgy, glorious, beautiful little girl. And as I went back through this story a little bit later, and look back at our journey. I looked at her birth certificate and I noticed something really interesting. That that moment that I was sitting in that theater, so upset with God and so hurting and so bitter and holding Angela's hand as she's crying and I'm just angry going, what are you doing? And that very day, Lily was being born 20 minutes away. She was born that day, the day that I was so upset. 
And the God who saw us in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our depression, anxiety, hurt, pain, anger, he was guiding perfectly this sweet little girl, this little baby, to the most unlikely couple. He loves us enough that he sees us and he knows us. And so no matter what you're going through today, there's always hope in Jesus. No matter how dark things seem to be, no matter how long it's been since you've seen the sun, there's always hope in him. He's going to redeem your pain. He's got a plan for your life, and he loves you more than you'll ever, ever know. And so today, if you're here today and you're battling hopelessness and you're battling that darkness and pain, I just say to you, there's someone who loves you and has a plan for you even in the midst of it and through it. It's a beautiful reminder to me on Father's Day that our Heavenly Father loves us so much that we never are out of his sight and his hand is never off of our lives and he is guiding us to a future he's prepared for us where he's going to redeem the pain that we've gone through for his glory and for someone else's good. Don't let today go by. If you're struggling with hopelessness, if you're struggling with doubt, if you feel like you're in a dark season, please come down and pray with us. Please grab a youth leader. Please grab Jerry or one of the pastors or, or someone on one of our teams. We would love to talk to you because remember, this is about you and your journey with God. He loves you and he sees you, he knows you, and your life is not escaping his sight. Jesus, I thank you so much for this truth today. I thank you for, even through the hard times, even through the down times, even through the most depressing moments of our lives, your hand is always with us, on us, and you're always near us. I thank you for that truth. And I pray even now for, for that person who's here today that feels hopeless and feels dark and they came in here today to give you one more chance. God, I pray you would make yourself so real to them even now that they would find grace and they would find peace and they would find hope in you. And I thank you for the dads who are here and I thank you for all of our stories and all the journeys you put us on to give us these children. I pray that we would lead our families this way that we would never lose sight of you, Jesus, through the storm, through the waves, through the wind, that we would never lose sight that you are in control and that you love us and that your promise is bigger than the storm. Thank you for this truth. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.